Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good afternoon, everyone. On the East Coast, in the Central Region, part of the United States. On the West Coast, uh, pretty soon it will be afternoon. Hello to you and around the world. My name is Kennard. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is a special two-hour program because there are some things that are happening in the world that may, and let me underscore that, may be significant prophetically. So as a servant of God, I when I see things that could affect uh, nations and people in the world, um, I will talk about it. That's one of the things that I must do, and I will do that. So there's a lot of or some detailed and specific world news that I must go over, and so that's the reason why uh, this is a two-hour program. So what is the big news? Well, Mr. Obama and my wife just alerted me to something here, and this is the reason why Yeshua tells us to watch, because we just don't know what's going to happen, and so far he's going to be going to the Middle East around the time of the Passover according to the Jewish calendar, which many people are saying is significant. But it states here in this article on Watch.org, it says Obama will cancel visit if no new Israeli coalition is formed by March 16th, which is it throws a monkey wrench into him going to the uh, the Middle East here. It says, as Netanyahu struggles to build a majority government, Israeli TV claims imminent, much-anticipated first presidential trip may now be in doubt. So this is the reason why Yeshua tells us, folks, to, to watch, because we just don't know what's going to happen. And those Torah teachers and ministers that act like they do, they need to read this scripture here, Mark chapter 13. And I'm going to read this here. Mark chapter 13, verse 28. Let's start there. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. I know many people say, oh, Israel. But let, let's, let's focus on what it's saying here. It says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So he's giving you a simple analogy, and he's using the fig tree as an example. Uh, When you see the fig tree's branch yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So in like manner or in similar fashion, 
when you see these things come to pass, what things? The things that he talked about in this chapter, and I'm going to try to talk about it in a little more detail today. Know that is near what? The, the time of his second coming. At the doors. And then verse 30. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Now, what generation is he talking about? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 21. He says, But then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, which means they will be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, no f human flesh or animal for that case, uh, saved. But for the elect's sake, these are people that keep the Shabbat holy days and those who are doing the best that they can to keep the commandments based on their knowledge. Those days shall be shortened. All right? So, he's talking about a time, a generation, where if he did not stop the generation, then all flesh would be destroyed. Now, in this context, what is a generation? Let's turn to Psalms, chapter 90. Verse 10. Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. That's 70 years, and that's pretty accurate based on United States statistics. Uh, generally, men live around 70 years, and, and women live more than men. But anyway, the days of our years are threescore years and seven, 70, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years or 80 years. So, he's telling us that a generation of man can be 70 years or 80 years by reason of strength. So we have to include that as well, 70 or 80 years. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 22, which tells us the generation that he's talking about. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Now, let me ask you a question. It should be a simple question if you really are thinking. What generation of man is capable of the destruction of the earth, as Yeshua is stating? Certainly not back in the first century. We did not have nuclear bombs back in the first century or any other century except the 20th century. In 1945, August 6, 1945, uh, the nuclear bomb called Little Boy was dropped on Hiroshima or Hiroshima and destroyed or did some considerable damage that some people are still suffering from today from that uh, city in Japan. Then Nagasaki also got a nuclear bomb. I forgot what the name or I don't know what the name of that particular bomb was if they gave it a name. But anyway, I remember Harry Truman, our president, uh, he actually, there actually is something on, on uh, 
YouTube that you can listen to, and then he states that we entered into the nuclear age where we have tapped into the power of the universe, the atom. And so from that point on in 1945, we have been living in the nuclear bomb generation, the generation where we can destroy every man and woman and child and animal off this earth several times over. That's the generation that Yeshua was talking about. This generation shall not pass the nuclear bomb generation until all things be fulfilled. And this generation started August 6, 1945. So a real simple way to tell you how much time you really have left. If we, and I'm highlighting this, if we're understanding the prophecies correctly, and if they've been translated correctly, which I believe they have, then we have to just simply add 70 or 80 years to 1945. Uh, you get between 2015 and 2025. Within those years, based on what I'm reading and based on my limited understanding, that's when the Messiah should come back between those years, 2015 to 2025. Now, here's another thing to consider. This is a good book, uh, Daniel Reveals the Bloodline of the Anti-Messiah by J.R. Church. And I was studying this book, trying to figure out Daniel 9, verse 27, which, <laughs> good luck. But anyway, um, one of the things that I want to bring your attention to, he has a nice little chart based on the sabbatical years and the jubilees here in the back of the book. And he makes a significant um, discovery here about the population of the world. Right now, the population of the world is at 7 billion people. But... That won't be in, let me take a look here, what he has. He has the populations of the world listed here conveniently in this book here. I mean, I think he, oh, here we go. All right, let me uh, find. Now, he states here in 2039 or the year 2040, the projected population of the world is 12, or will be 12 billion people. 12 billion people. So, is <laughs> we can barely get along right now with 7 billion people. It's going to be very difficult for us to get along with 12 billion people on the earth at this particular juncture in history. So, this is something to, to to consider here. Should the Lord want things to go on even more uh, than the 2025? But he did state that this generation, this nuclear bomb generation, will not pass until all these things be fulfilled. So I'm just telling you what he stated. And if he doesn't, then the population of the world at uh 2040 is projected to be at 12 billion people, which is a lot of people, folks. And um, it's going to be very difficult for us to all get along, as Rodney King stated, with 12 billion people on the earth. And then uh, 2080, the projected population of the world at that time is 24 
billion people with a B. And again, that's that's just too many people on the earth. Um, and something has to happen, ladies and gentlemen, um, for that that we just wouldn't have enough food for for twelve billion people on the earth. I just I just hope you realize that that's just a lot of people and. We just wouldn't have enough food for 12 billion people, and that's projected to happen, of course. I'm trying to find a projection for um, 240, for 2025, the projected population of the Earth. Let me see if I can look it up on Google here. I should be able to find it here. I'm just curious what the population would be at that time. Projected population, look it up here, projected population, year 2025. Okay, world population estimates. So maybe we'll find what we're looking for here under Google. Here we go. Oops. Wikipedia, rather. I tell you, the Wikipedia is definitely a good tool to use. And it really helps out when you're trying to find information here. Let me go back. I clicked the wrong link here. Sorry about that. World Population Estimates. That's what I should be clicking. There we go. Okay. All right, does it have up to just 2,000? Okay, here we go. 2,025 world population estimates. All right, United States Bureau. Well, we're at 7 billion already, so 2,025, that would be close to 8 billion people. According to some other sources, it's about 8 billion people around 2,025. So I just thought I give you that information, but um, anyway, it's going to get to a point, if it goes past 2025, it's going to be very unbearable. I think 8 billion people perhaps could be stretching it as well. But anyway, just wanted to point that out to you. Let's go back to the article here about Obama, well, yeah, uh, stating that the trip could be in doubt here because of the you know politics and, and so forth, which I hate because of the shenanigans that goes on. So, but if Obama does go to Jerusalem, which is pretty interesting that he's doing it around this time, here's his itinerary based on some information that I researched here. This is on the Free Republic website, freerepublic.com. And the states, and this is by, I don't know, he says me, I don't know who that is. <laughs> anyway, it says the mysterious timeline of Barack Obama visit to Israel. It says, according to ynetnews.com, Jerusalem and Washington have set the itinerary for President Barack Obama's visit to Israel as follows. Now, keep in mind, this is if uh, Bibi gets his act together, Netanyahu, and gets his cabinet together um, by the 16th, according to what Obama said. 
So I'm going to read highlights here. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but it states here. It says, Obama will then fly to Jerusalem directed to Perez residence where, where he'll again be ceremoniously received. So you'll have a ceremony at uh, the president's uh, residence, Perez, not the prime minister. He will continue with Perez and Netanyahu to Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum where he will lay a wreath in the Hall of Remembrance. So he'll lay a wreath in the Hall of Remembrance. The next stop will be Mount Herzl, where Obama will lay a wreath on Herzl's tomb as a gesture to Zionism. Obama will continue your Yitzhak Rabin's tomb, and that's the prime minister that got assassinated, laying a wreath there as well. In the afternoon, the entourage will arrive at the prime minister's house where Netanyahu and Obama will meet with small delegations to discuss issues such as Iran, Syria, the peace process, the peace process, and Jonathan Pollard. So they'll be at the prime minister's house to discuss those things. Again, they're going to discuss Iran, Syria, the peace process, and Jonathan Poland, or Pollard. Following the meeting, a joint press conference will be held after which the two and their staff will dine together. I wish I was there to enjoy that meal. Anyway, the following morning, Obama will depart from Ramallah to meet with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Obama will return to Jerusalem by noon when he will be taken by Netanyahu to examine a model of the Second Temple period Jerusalem again. Obama will return to Jerusalem by noon when he will be taken by Netanyahu to examine a model, a model of the Second Temple period Jerusalem, which is pretty interesting here. Because I'm going to read you another article too in reference to that. But anyway, they will continue to the shrine of the book where Netanyahu will show him the Dead Sea Scrolls. If people that are listening to me the first time don't know who the, what the, they that ugh, that don't know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, they're the um, oldest find. Actually, these documents were found dated around the first century, which helped prove the legitimacy of the Bible. The American president will continue to see an exhibition in the Israeli Museum, or the Israel Museum, which will show Israel's latest developments in high-tech, biotech, nanotechnology, and agriculture. In the afternoon, Obama will address Israelis. I'm going to go slow with this one. In the afternoon, Obama will address Israelis in a public speech in the Israel Museum or the International Convention Center in Jerusalem. The Americans have requested the presence of at least 1,000 Israelis, which is pretty interesting. Later, Obama will be hosted for a ceremonial dinner by Perez. Friday, March 22nd, Obama will breakfast, or he will have breakfast, with Netanyahu in his home or in King David Hotel, which is a popular hotel in Jerusalem. The two will go to visit an Iron Dome battery where Obama will meet with the soldiers manning the battery. At uh, the 13th hour in the 24-hour period, a farewell ceremony will take place in an international airport from which the president will depart to meet King Abdallah in Jordan. So he's going to meet the Jordan King. And he stated here, if you made it this far, you're probably asking yourself, what is so mysterious? Well, I shall tell you what I found in this timeline that caused my jaw to drop after some initial calculations. Read the following item again. Obama will return to Jerusalem by noon on March 21st, the day following his arrival, 
when he would be taken by Netanyahu to examine a model of Second Temple period Jerusalem. The day Obama is scheduled to visit the Jewish Temple model, the 21st of March, is exactly five days before Passover, which, of course, is before this is based on the Jewish calendar, the calculated calendar, which this year falls on March 26th. For those unfamiliar, what's shocking is Jesus, or Yeshua, entered Jerusalem in the real Temple Mount 2,000 years ago, also exactly five days before Passover. So that's what he's saying there. All right, so that that's that's the the mysterious thing there. That's that's a a, a coincidence there, an accidental um, occurrence perhaps. But um, and it says here, recall the following statement: In the afternoon, Obama will address Israelis in a public speech in the Israel Museum or in the International Convention Center in Jerusalem. The Americans have requested the presence of at least 1,000 Israelis. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? So, he's saying that that may sound a little strange there, that he's doing that. And he's relating Matthew 24 to verse, verse 15 to that. But but in, in any case, I think it's pretty interesting that if he does go to Jerusalem, if he does go to Jerusalem, all these events that are happening. Now, I know many of you, at least most of you should have heard by now, that the Pope uh, decided to step down. He, he decided to step down. His last day was... Uh, his last day was, uh, what is it? I think it was February 28th. So... Um, I saw pictures of him waving to the crowd and so forth. So uh, right now there's no Pope, and they're going to start the process of um, trying to find a, a Pope. So um, that that's what's going on right now. So things are really heating up, folks, and... We need to be paying attention to, to world events. Uh, we need to be paying attention to what's going on. And, and we need to to watch what's going on. Okay, so let me read this article to you. I found this article on the Internet by Arudz Shiva. Israeli National News, and this article is dated uh, in November, and it states, yeah, November 28, 2012, it states uh, the following, Netanyahu, or Muslims claim Netanyahu plans to build a false, <laughs> using a little rhetoric there, the Muslims claim Netanyahu plans to build false holy temples. Netanyahu's latest building plan for Jerusalem is none other than the Third Temple, claims Al-Ask Foundation. And it says, Al-Ask officials warned that the new Likud is planning to build a false Third Holy Temple and divide the Muslim compound. Muslim paranoia of Jews on the Temple Mount had reached panic stages even before the week's Likud primaries that placed Jewish leadership faction leader Moje. It's interesting, his name is Moje. Moje, I'm trying to find the 
rest of the text here, okay, um, feeling in a ranking that assures his election to the Knesset in January as the Israeli government. Arab world media constantly report of Jewish invasions of the Temple Mount every time Jews try to ascend the holy site. Israeli authorities enforce the Muslim waf policy that forbids Jews to pray there or carry prayer books or other holy articles with them. The Palestinian Authority and Islamic Movement's branch in Galilee frequently claim that Israel is digging underneath the Temple Mount to cause its collapse. Now the Al-Ask Foundation has pointed to the popular support for Feiling and other strong nationalists of the Likud as proof that Al-Ask Mosque on the Temple Mount will be contaminated by Jews. Worst of all, the Foundation claims that the election results show that Prime Minister Netanyahu soon will announce plans for building the third temple, which is which it describes as false, in line with the increasingly popular, I would say false, Muslim ideology that the first and second temples never existed, which is one of the most idiotic things ever thought uh, that I've ever known. But anyway, so much proof that those temples did exist. But anyway, all the evidence is undeniable proof that the Al-Azq Mosque is in danger and that the Muslim world must shoulder the responsibility to save it, according to Al-Azq. Phelan is known for his desire to pray on the Temple Mount, and after the pillar of defense counter-terrorist operation, he wrote, We must expel the Muslim wife from the Temple Mount and restore exclusive Israeli uh, rights over the Mount, Judaism's most holy site, or sovereignty. We must encourage Jews to ascend the Temple Mount after the proper halakhic preparations and to actualize their sovereignty over their sovereignty over the beating heart of the Jewish nation. So this is a, a pretty interesting article in light of what I've been um, reading to you so far. He announced this in November, and I looked at Monty Judah's little eight-minute uh, synopsis of um, his understanding about how the, the, the tribulation would start. And he stated that uh, him and Eddie Chumney had um, uh, obtained some information stating that uh, he will, he does plan on a, a announcing in the spring that, uh, or he may announce in the spring, that a temple uh, will be built. We don't know. But again, we have to watch and see if these things are going to, to come into play. So I'm just, as a servant of God, I'm just doing what Christ told us to do here. Let's read the rest of this prophecy in Mark so that you understand why I'm, I'm going over these things here. And he states here, in verse 30 of Mark chapter 13, Verily I say unto you that this generation, this nuclear bomb generation, shall not pass till all these things be done. Verse 31, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. In verse 32, But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Verse 33 of Mark chapter 13. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Now, I'm going to say this again for those who are trying to figure out what the time is. Uh, verse 33, without assistance and help from what world events or what events happen. Uh, in verse 33, take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. That's what it says. And what does that word mean in the original Greek? 
it says proper time, season. So we don't know when the season is. All right? And he's going to tell you how you're going to know, but we're not going to know without watching. That's the point. (laughs) Verse 34, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Okay, so we're going to have to watch to be able to know the seasons, folks. Watch the heavenly signs, but we also need to watch world events as well. Verse 35, and our spiritual condition. Verse 35, I explained that last week. Mark 13, verse 35, Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes. Now, he's getting specific here. At evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. So he can come in the evening. The Messiah may come back in the evening, at midnight, or at the cock crowing, at the cock crowing, or the, the third night watch, or in the morning. So he can come at four different times during the day. We're not going to know at what time of day he's coming. But we're going to be able to know today because, as I'm going to explain, when the, the tribulation begins, that's when we're going to be able to start counting. Mark 13, verse 36, least coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And verse 37, and that, and what I say unto you, I say unto you all. So he just didn't say this to, to his disciples back then in the first century. He's telling us all, every single one of us who claim to be believers. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So we have to watch, folks. We don't know it all when it comes to prophecy. So we have to understand that, and that's the reason why I've decided to start teaching prophecy again, and I'm very careful by how I teach it because it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And you, you have to really take the time to be very careful on how you're teaching it. Because if you don't, then you, you'll make these predictions. And the predictions tend to <laughs> not be accurate. All right? And then here's something else you need to remember. Let's turn to First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. I'm going to read this in the the easy-to-read version here. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, it says, Love will never end, but all those gifts will come to an end, even the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in different kinds of languages, and the gift of knowledge. Verse 9, these will all end because this knowledge and these prophecies we have are not complete. Verse 10. But when perfection comes, the things that are not complete will end. Okay, so he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I made plans like a child. When I became a man, I stopped those childish ways. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the same of us. Now we see God as if we are looking at a reflection in a mirror. But then in the future, we will see him right before our eyes. 
which is a picture of Yom Kippur. Now I know only a part, but at that time I will know fully as God has known me. Okay? So I'm quoting this scripture in reference to prophecy. We have to realize that we don't have a complete understanding of prophecy. Daniel didn't understand all the prophecies. <laughs> Let me quote you a scripture here. Uh, Daniel, as, as intelligent as he was back then, didn't understand these prophecies that we're struggling to understand today. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 6, says, And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? He didn't understand. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand into heaven, and swore by him that lived forever and ever, that it shall be a time, times and a, and a half. That's three and a half years when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. So it's going to take him three and a half years. Uh, the anti-Messiah, which I'm going to go over in detail today, uh, for him to accomplish to scatter the power of the holy people. And he states here, and then all these things shall be finished. So that's the direct question that if any of you are wondering how long will it be to the end of these things, the focus is not on the one week that's uh, described in Daniel 9, verse 27, which is the seven years. The focus is on the three and a half years. And then in verse 8, Daniel in verse 12, uh, Daniel 12, verse 8, he says, And I heard, but I understood not. He didn't understand. He said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? He didn't understand. You know, the angel told him this, and then he still didn't understand. In verse 9, and he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end, and you might as well put it near the 21st century. And then he states later on in this chapter that the wise shall understand. I'll be reading this chapter again here, but I just wanted to make a point. So, uh, we have to understand that prophecy is something to really be careful about. Now, before I get into a detailed discussion about the things to look for, that will bring on the Great Tribulation. I'm going to talk about Lot's wife. That's the, the title of this Bible study, Remember Lot's Wife. What is so significant about Lot's wife? Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 26 in the King James. So, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 27, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Similarly, or likewise, in verse 28 of Luke chapter 17, Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, and this is what I want to focus on, the days of Lot, because we're definitely living in days similar to of Lot, and I'm going to describe how. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they built it. So they lived life, 
Verse 29, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he said the 21st century is going to be similar to what happened to um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Although the whole world won't be destroyed. But a significant part will as the book of Revelation reveals. Verse 31. And that day he shall, and that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. All right? And then he says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. And then in verse 33, whoever shall seek to save his life, shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. So he's telling us to remember Lot's wife. Let's go back and see what happened to Lot's wife. I'm sure you all remember, but let's go back. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. So let's go over this whole thing here. Well, actually, no. Let's go to where we, you know what happened. And the the people there, they wanted to, to rape or have sex with the angels. And then that was it. The angels said, okay, that's enough. <laughs> We've had enough. We know now that this Sodom and Gomorrah is guilty and they need to be destroyed. So anyway. Let's start in verse 12 here. And the men said unto Lot, Genesis 19, verse 12, Hast thou there any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whosoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place? All right, so let's, let's take this, this, this. I want you to really focus on this because Yeshua told us that as in the days of Lot, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's saying that the things that happened in the days of Lot will be similar to what's going to happen in the 21st century. Now, for those who are interested in being able to flee physically, we need to pay attention to this. This is in the context of remembering Lot's wife. Verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and who whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place? Verse 13, so you need to get out of the cities. Get out of the cities. Verse 13, For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's the cry of people suffering. The cry of people suffering from the following sins. The failure to adequately help and care for the poor. People being prideful. Eating too much. Abundance of laziness, sexual perversion. These are all the sins of Sodom that I went over last week in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 to 50. These are sins that the United States are chief of. Uh, we, we're the chief sinners of all these, these sins. A failure to adequately help and care for the poor. 
pride, eating too much, abundance of laziness, sexual perversion. We There's no reason why not one person in this country should be in poverty. We're the richest country in the world. And if this person wants, now there's a few that are lazy, but I'm saying the majority aren't, and they're trying to do it the best that they can. We have enough resources to be able to help the poor. And I'm talking about the people. The government shouldn't be helping the poor. It should be the people. Should be our, our churches should be helping the poor like we used to and the sick. And we don't do that. We leave it to the government. That's wrong. But anyway, um, back in uh, 14, Genesis 19, verse 14, and Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he's seen as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. That mocked unto his sons-in-law. In other words, um, his sons-in-law didn't believe. Now, I want you to understand something here. <laughs> it, it appears that God, and this is, this is the reason why Yeshua told us to watch. God is going to let us know, either directly or indirectly, when it's time to flee, folks. That's pretty obvious. And how do we know that? Well, even during the times of Noah, hold your place here. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, when Noah uh, was fleeing from the earth. All right? Now, God decided to destroy man in Genesis 6, verse 5, and he says, And God saw that the wickedness of man, this is during the days of Noah, which, you know, all these movies pictured uh, Noah's time as people looking, you know, had, they just weren't looking like they're technologically advanced. And there's a good book that I suggest you, you look at and reference and read called The Genesis Flood that proves that Noah's civilization was technologically advanced, perhaps even more than ours. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 says that there's nothing new under the sun. So anyway, Genesis 6 verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And in verse 7, And the Lord said, I would destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. In verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, meaning he didn't have his seed perverted by angels. Uh, and uh, it's explained there in the first couple of verses that angels did have sex with women on the earth and perverted the seed of man. But Noah's line did not have that. Verse 11, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And the earth is getting to that point now. Verse 12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God directly spoke to Noah here. And he commanded Noah to make an ark. I'm not going to read that. And in verse 18, he states in Genesis 6, verse 18, But I, but with thee will I establish my covenant. Interesting, isn't it? And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, thou shalt bring into the ark to keep alive with thee. They shall be male and female. So anyway, 
And in verse 22, he didn't argue with the Lord, as Lot, he hesitated, as you're going to see. But thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So when you look at uh, Genesis 7, verse 1, and then the Lord had to tell Noah when it was time to flee or go into the ark. In Genesis 7, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And of every clean beast, this is interesting, there were clean beasts back then to, to separate. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and the female, and so forth. And so, and then verse 5, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And this is interesting. And um, the Lord had to tell him when it was time to flee. And then in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 7, And they, and they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So the Lord just shut him in and protected him. So that's how Noah fled. And I also want to quote this scripture to help you understand that God acknowledges this, Noah doing what God commanded him to do, to do all he can to protect himself, and then God did the rest. But he didn't have the attitude of just, just focusing so much on just protecting because he was a preacher of righteousness, as I quoted last week, the scripture. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. So God had to warn him. Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So Noah, again, he was a preacher of righteousness. And Second Peter 2, verse 5, says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then, he, of course, he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into the ashes, condemned with them an overthrow, making an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, so we also, just like Lot, should not like the wickedness that we see and hear about, as I'm going to discuss to you about what the president stated about homosexuality again in, in, the, in the context of Lot. So we need to do that, do those things, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Let's continue with the story here, a significant story. So anyway, his sons-in-law did not take Lot seriously, so that was their loss in verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, that you not be consumed in the iniquity of the city. So again, the Lord had to use his angels to tell them when it was time to go. Verse 16. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him about the city. Verse 17. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad 
that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. So the angel is commanding Lot and his family to escape for your life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain. So we should go to the mountain, to the wilderness, as you're going to see in Revelation chapter 12, that we're going to go into the wilderness. Escape to the mountain, that you not be consumed. Verse 18. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. <laughs> Verse 19. So he was being stubborn. He didn't want to. So you have to remember not only Lot's wife, but also Lot and his attitude here. Verse 19. Behold now, Thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and you have magnified thy mercy, which you have showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, that not some evil take me and die. So what kind of faith is Lot exhibiting here? Actually, none. But, you know, God was merciful to him. Verse 20. Behold, now the city is near to flee unto you, and it is a little one, this city. So he didn't want to do what the angels told him to do. He wanted to go flee into another city. But, but the the angels told him to flee to the mountains. And we need to take here to that. We need to, to take that seriously today because Yeshua told us that the days of Lot would be similar to the 21st century. So we need to, to understand that this is prophetic. Verse 20, Behold now, this city is near to flee unto you, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. It is, is it not a little one? <laughs> and my soul shall live. So he, he he wanted to ignore what God com commanded the angels to tell him. The angels knew better than him, but of course we unfortunately have this attitude thinking we know better than God and His servants. Uh, that he, his angels that directly see God and talk to God and come down on earth and tell him, and he, he didn't want to believe what they told him. Anyway, this is an interesting story here, verse twenty-one of Genesis chapter nineteen, and he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also that I will not overthrow this city for thou, for the which you have spoken. So God was even merciful to Lot here. Even though he wanted him to go to the mountains. But you'll see in a minute, that's what he should have did in the first place. In verse 22, Genesis 19, verse 22, Hasty, escape, for I cannot do anything till you come out. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. Verse 23, The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Verse 24, then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Verse 25, And he overthrew those cities and, and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So he destroyed the whole city. Verse 26, but here's the sad part. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And so this this is a lesson that we must learn. If God tells us to do something, we better do it, folks. And there's various reasons why people think that she looked back. She may have longed for the, the sins of Sodom or she was influenced by it. But the, the real moral to the story here is that she just didn't want to obey. Yeah, she did not want to obey God. And she became a pillar of salt. And then verse 27, Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And verse 28, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Verse 29, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered 
Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up to Zoar, that's his little city that he wanted to go, be in so much, and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in the cave, he and his two daughters. So this is interesting that he ended up dwelling in the mountain <laughs> despite what he wanted to do. He wanted to go, be in the city, Zoar. And the angel said, go to, this, go, you go to the city, I won't destroy that, but he ended up dwelling in a cave, he and his two daughters. So this is a good story, and again, Yeshua stated that as in the days of Lot, so shall be uh, the time of his coming, which, according to my human comprehension, is the 21st century. I don't see a 22nd century, folks. So um, we we need to take care of that. We, we need to remember Lot's wife, and we need to remember the sins of Sodom, what they flew from. Again, those sins of Sodom, which are very prevalent in the United States and around the world at this time, as I speak. Failure to adequately help and care for the poor. Pride. Eating too much. Abundance of laziness. Sexual perversion. Which this country is certainly guilty of. And God calls us Sodom. Our leader Sodom. Let me read that. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, states this. He says, The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't consider. And he says, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evil. So they have evil seed among the nation of Israel, among the twelve tribes, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They have gone away backward. They have gone away backward. Verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt. More and more, the whole head, the head of this administration, the Obama administration currently, is sick. And I'm going to describe to you how sick they are in a minute. And the whole heart faint. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even into the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. I did give a program about how to use essential oils. Uh, it's in the archives. Verse 7, and this is what's going to happen to our country. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and in this desolate is overthrown by strangers. That's what we're coming to, folks. Verse 8, and the daughter of Zion, which is referring to uh, Jerusalem, but also, this is also referring to the twelve tribes of Israel as well. Is left as a cottage, as in the vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left Unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been likened to Gomorrah as far as suffering their fate. But he's not going to allow the twelve tribes of Israel to be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah because of a very small remnant of believers within the twelve tribes. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He calls us 
the rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law or Torah of our God, ye people of Gomar. So he calls the 12 tribes, in particular this United States, the chief of the nations at this time. Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's unfortunate. Let me read this article to you. It's, it's, it's sad. It's telling you how sick we are as a nation. And we need to repent of this abomination. So, let me go back to watch.org again. Watch.org. Uh, another headline here says, Carry a rise in Egypt seeking crucial reform. So Egypt is definitely in the end times here as a significant uh, event here. Now, he has here, and this is a, a pretty good uh, article here. He says, The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. I'm going to read this in the easy-to-read version. Surely you know that people who do wrong will not get to enjoy God's kingdom. Don't be fooled. These are the people who will not get to enjoy his kingdom. Those who sin sexually those who worship idols, those who commit adultery, men who let other men use them for sex or who have sex with other men, those who steal, those who are greedy, those who drink too much, those who abuse others with insults, and those who cheat. In the past, some of you were like that, but you were washed clean, you were made holy, and you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So he's telling you that people that are homosexual and they know it's wrong and they continue to do it, their chances of being in God's kingdom is not very likely according to this scripture. Uh, in the English Standard Version, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the English Standard Version in the Bible. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor people who like to have parties and so forth, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so that's a very significant scripture. Let's go back to this article. It says, President Barack Obama said Friday that the country as a whole has gone through the same evolution he has, he has in now supporting same-sex marriage. During a press conference Friday, Obama was asked about his Justice Department's brief in the California voted-approved Proposition 8 case before the Supreme Court that will decide whether the state and possibly other states can ban gay marriage. I quote Obama, As everyone here, President Obama, as everyone here knows, last year upon a long period of reflection, I concluded that we cannot discriminate against same-sex couples when it comes to marriage that the basic principle that America is founded on, the idea that we're all created equal, but we're not, and I'm just putting a little disclaimer here, we're not created gay, Mr. Obama. 
applies to everyone regardless of sexual orientation, as well as race or gender or religion or ethnicity. Obama said, I think the same evolution that I've gone through is an evolution that the country as a whole has gone through, and I think it is a profoundly positive thing. And he's right about that. Statistics prove that over 50% in this country don't have a problem with gay marriage. So he's right about that. But he's not right about his reasoning that homosexuality is okay. It's not. And I fear for this nation that this nation will suffer greatly because of what this president is doing. And I'm sure he's being warned. But he needs to continue to be warned about what he's doing. Now, this is interesting that in light of what he just said here, East Coast monster storm risk next week has begun in the Northwest. And this is a classic Omega block. The pattern resembles the Greek letter Omega. And as we can recall in Revelation 22, verse 13, Yeshua states, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, which is interesting. There's a wintry system that will make a cross-country tour beginning this weekend has the potential to develop into a powerful, damaging, and very disruptive storm along the East Coast next week. Once the storm reaches the Atlantic coast Wednesday into Thursday, March 6 to 7, conditions at most levels in the nearby atmosphere and well away from the storm throughout North America will favor explosive development. Explosive development. At this point, the storm could become a real monster. While being too cold and stopping shy of becoming a tropical system, it could pack the punch like one with serious impacts to lives, property, and travel plans according to Chief Meteorologist Elliot Abrams, there may be similarities to the storm, I quote, which affected much of the same around the same area around March 6, 1962, end of quote. So again, you know, I've written the article, and I hope you've read the article by now, uh, that, that proves that that God will allow certain weather disturbances to to help you to understand that he does not like certain things to occur like the homosexuality for instance that that's something that he just certainly doesn't like and he's going to let everyone know that he doesn't by allowing certain weather disturbances and, and other disturbances to occur and the name of the article that I suggest uh, highly that you read is called, I'm trying to pull it up here, and I have uh, several um, Bible study articles, uh, a few anyway, not several, but three of them. I need to write more, but anyway. This article is called God, it's called God and Hurricanes, and Job chapter 37, verse 11 to 13 states, Rain clouds, this is read in the contemporary English version for clarity's sake. It says, Rain clouds filled with lightning appear at God's command, traveling across the sky to release their cargo, sometimes as punishment for sin, and sometimes as kindness. And then in Job 36, verse 29 to 32, Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea, for by these he judges the peoples. He gives food in abundance. 
So he judges the people by weather disturbances. And you could uh, look at the other um, verses that I quote in this article to understand that. But I know that he's not very pleased by Obama and other people's stance with homosexuality, and he's going to let people know about that, folks, through the weather and, and through other things that he allows. And we we have to stop thinking that God is pleased with the way this administration is uh, going about trying to achieve things, because he's not. He's not. And there is another article I don't have time to read right now. It's called Encountering Peace, Israeli-Palestinian Peace is Achievable. So please read that article in light of what's going on. And I wanted to read also two things in the Temple Institute, and then I'm going to get into a Bible study about what the things to look for as far as the abomination of desolation and, and so forth. So we'll have clear signs here to watch. Okay, so templeinstitute.org, I want to announce something that I think is very significant here. There's two historic upcoming events. Um, there's Temple Awareness Day on March 10th. I'm going to read a little bit here what it states here. It's in the templeinstitute.org. That's templeinstitute.org. He has it right on the, on the first page of the website. It's the 4th Annual International Temple Mount Awareness Day. It's on 28 Adar, according to the Jewish calendar, March 10th, 2013. Coming soon, the 4th Annual International Temple Mount Awareness Day online three-hour streaming video. So, according to Eastern Standard Time in the United States, it's 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Central, it's 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And Pacific, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And for those who are in Israel listening to me, <laughs> it's, uh, it starts at 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Israeli time, or Israel time. So it says, this year's International Temple Mount Awareness Day happening is made possible in part by a grant from the Chagra family of America. So it says, once again, the Temple Institute is proud to present our annual International Temple Mount Awareness Day happening. Awareness Day takes place each year during the week of Rosh Hodesh Nisan, the new month of Nisan. Rosh Hodesh Nisan is, or Kodesh Nisan is the anniversary of the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So they're going to dedicate the tabernacle in the wilderness to the first day of the divine service. The day on which fire descended from heaven into the altar and the, and the first day in which the Shekinah, the divine presence, rested in the tabernacle. Nisan is the month of redemption, the month in which our forefathers were redeemed from Egypt's bondage. But the month is called so not only because of the upcoming festival of Passover and our ancestors' passage from slavery to freedom, Tradition teaches that in the future as well, the great and final redemption will take place in Nisan. And, you know, Noah, he, he um, during the second month, which was around the Passover, he got into the ark. And also it appears that Lot, around the same time, flew Sodom and Gomorrah. And it appears that in the 21st century, because Yeshua stated that played at your flight, be not in the winter or on the Shabbat. So it appears that, again, our flight or our way of escape will be around the Passover time. So it says the purpose of the day is twofold, to draw international attention to the plight of the Temple Mount, the holiest place on earth, 
where currently non-Muslims are not allowed to pray, and where a Muslim-run campaign to destroy all existing remnants of the Holy Temple and to deny that the Holy Temple ever existed, and to convert the entire Temple Mount into a Muslim-only site continues to be waged day after day. The fourth International Temple Mount Awareness Day will be both entertaining and informative. Our main goal is to raise temple consciousness. So our main goal is to raise temple consciousness and connect you with the Holy Temple as we meet with people who have dedicated their lives to the Holy Temple and to rediscovering and revitalizing the the, uh, disciplines, practices, and knowledge that are part and parcel of the temple experience and the wonder of the divine service. This this year we are planning our most exciting International Temple Mount Awareness Day online happening ever. So we will be talking to Barack Sturman, a physicist and founder, founding member of the Tekelet organization, manufacturers of the biblical blue dye, and author of the recently published book, The Rarest Blue. That's talking about uh, wearing seat seats as covered in Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37. We will also be taking you to the moon, or at least to a proper scientific halakhic or halakhic sighting of the new moon, just as it was done 2,000 years ago. And as all authorities agree, it will be done again in the near future. Let me underscore that again. All authorities agree. It will be done again in the near future. Dr. Roy Hoffman, the founder of the Israel New Moon Society, describes the correct way of citing and reporting the new moon to the Sanhedrin. For those who are confused by thinking that a new moon is conjunction and all these other ridiculous theories, you need to look at this. All right? Again, in Romans chapter 3, the Jews have an advantage. So anyway, the founder of the Israeli New Moon Society describes the correct way of citing and reporting the new moon to the Sanhedrin and the preparations being made today for the renewal of Torah commandment of announcing each new moon based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And this is based on Deuteronomy chapter 16 in the Torah. Verse 1 states, observe, that means to see, the month of Aviv, or Nisan, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. So they're going by what the Torah states. We have to see it to declare it. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't have to see it, and then it's there, and observe it. But anyway, we will be stepping out of our studio and taking you on a tour of the Temple Mount where together we will reconstruct in our mind's eye the bringing of the Corban Pesach, the Paschal offering by all of Israel. We will be mesmerized and brought to tears of joy by the extraordinary music and storytelling of world-renowned and much-beloved Shlomo Katz, or Solomon Katz. We will take you to the Jerusalem Old City home of Rabbi Yisrael Ariel, founder of the Temple Institute, where he will describe the power and significance of the month of Nisa. And then, oh, this is interesting, her name is Miriam. We will also be talking with Miriam Arman, vocal reconstructionist, author, lecturer, fine artist, and poet, who will be describing her spiritual approach to the teaching of singing, speaking, and communicating based on the ancient knowledge and practices of the Levites in the Holy Temple. 
We will also be taking you on a personal sneak preview guided tour of our brand new Holy Temple Visitor Center, scheduled to open just days after the Awareness Day broadcast. We will take you to the Knesset, or Knesset, Israel's Parliament, where we will talk to the veteran Temple Mount activist and newly elected member of the Knesset, Moje, another guy's name, Moje, Phelan. I just got through talking about him, I think, in that article. Anyway, you will be able to communicate directly to Rabbi Richmond, who's the uh, the head of the uh, Temple Institute there, and Yatshik Revan directly throughout the live streaming web class via our chat room, so you can actually chat with them. And the states here, be a part of this year's International Temp Mount, Temple Mount Awareness Day happening by becoming a sponsor. And I have contributed to the Temple Mount, and I suggest anyone uh, continue to do so. You will be doing a good thing to contribute toward the building of the third, the prophesied third temple. So I, I felt it was important to announce that, and then also on March 13th, the opening of the Temple Institute's new visitor center. And the Temple Institute's moving to a new location, and you can read the rest of that. It has um, a map and a chart of their new location here on the website. So please don't miss this, folks. Uh, you're going to learn a lot about the Temple, uh, what the news is not covering, what your your local church is not covering. And uh, you need to realize that prophecy is being fulfilled in this end time. But it's really interesting that all this is going on with the possible uh, visitation of Obama, uh, him visiting Jerusalem. I think that's very, very interesting what's going on here in reference to that. Okay, now, in the remaining minutes that I have here, and I may continue this next week if um, I don't get through with everything, but uh, we need to cover basically what will happen what are the signs of Yeshua coming back? That's what we need to cover. And I'll do the best I can to do that here. So let me go back here. So these are exciting times, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you realize that, and uh, I just hope that you get a chance to, to view that presentation. It's totally free. It doesn't cost you anything. And uh, I think you're going to be delighted in, in looking at those things online and, and learning about the temple. So I just invite you to, and I implore you to uh, review that. Okay, we understand what Remembrance Lot's wife is about. We must obey the Lord when he tells us it's time to flee. It appears that he's going to tell us either directly or indirectly that when it's time to flee, we will know. All right, so let's discuss the signs of the... Let me get some water here. I'll be right back. Okay, in the remaining... How many minutes I have? Yes, 44 minutes. Let me explain to you the signs of the second coming of the Messiah to the best of my ability. All right. Now, first of all, in... Matthew chapter 24, verse 5 to 8, he talked about the beginning of sorrows. And I went over this briefly last week. So he talked about, first of all, religious deception. That's the first seal. And that's covered in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. 
The second seal is wars, as identified by Yeshua in Matthew 24, verse 5 to 8. That's in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. Famine, which we're experiencing now. The third seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5 to 6. And this is all going to culminate or end with the fourth seal. Revelation 6, verse 8. 25% of the population of the world, 1.7 billion people currently, will be killed by wars, famine, pestilence, the fourth seal. These are all the beginning of sorrows, and we should be preparing to deal with the beginning of sorrows, ladies and gentlemen, just like Noah did. All right? Now, the Great Tribulation. What are the characteristics of the Great Tribulation? And what are the signs that we need to look for that the Tribulation represents? Well, the fifth seal is obviously a martyrdom, the murder of believers. Let's read that. Uh, the fifth seal in Revelation 6, verse 9 and 11. And it has everything to do with the Great Tribulation, as I'm going to prove to you. Revelation chapter 6, and this is the fifth seal. This is after the beginning of sorrows. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9, says, When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And here's the key verse to understand this. Verse 11, Then, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they have to wait until all um, of God's servants are killed. And that brings me to a couple of scriptures here. Um, um, Revelation. Revelation chapter uh, 13 here. And it talks about the beast here. Revelation 13 verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So the geopolitical beast will have power to exercise authority over the entire world for 42 months in the verse 7 of Revelation chapter 13. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people, language, and nation. So he's going to conquer all the saints in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimonies, talking about the two witnesses, they're going to be prophesying 1,260 days. rather. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So conquering them means kill them. And, and then in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, Verse 6, he asked the angel, I quoted this earlier, I'm going to quote it again. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand. 
toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, that's the destruction or the killing of the holy people, all these things will be finished. So, getting back to Revelation again. And I'm going to read Revelation 10, verse 6. Actually, starting at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, this is similar to Daniel that I just read to you about uh, him swearing, uh, and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in, in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seven angels of the days of the seven trumpets, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, to prophets. And so, we understand, when we go back to Revelation chapter 11, where the two witnesses will be destroyed. All right, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So the Jerusalem area will be in a Sodomitic, Sodom, Sodomitic condition at this time. Verse 9, and for three and a half days, not years, I know people are incorrectly taught that this is talking about years. It says days, folks. That's in the Greek. For three and a half days, some people, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And, and another the way to reason this, how in the world would their bodies be intact three and a half years, for three and a half years? It's, it's not going to happen, folks. It's, it's going to be skeletons. Okay? And verse 10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And then verse 11, But after three and a half days, similar to Yeshua. He was three days and three nights in the grave. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. In verse 12, Then they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They uh, went to the throne room in heaven, and they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched after them. In verse 13 of Revelation chapter 11, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come, or come quickly. So it did come quickly in verse 15. It doesn't tell you when, but it's coming quickly, <laughs> after the sixth trumpet. I want you to notice that in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices. Now, what did the angel say in Revelation chapter 10? When that seventh trumpet... It's, it sounded the, the mystery of God is ended. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, so we know at the seventh trump, that's when the, the, the kingdom of God uh, comes to this earth. Okay, um, but getting back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, it states that, and they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
And the devil starts his warlike attitude and persecution toward the saints in a three-and-a-half-year period, as proved by Revelation chapter 12, uh, when it states here in verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. So they were willing to sacrifice their lives. Verse 12, and what did Yeshua say? He who does not love his life shall save it, right? Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe, woe, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, what's the length of that time? What's the length of the time that he knows is short? We will find that out in a minute here. In verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, that's the believers, but the believers of the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the servant into the wilderness, a mountainous area, as uh, the prophecy about Lot revealed, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times and a half a time. Verse 15, the servant poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Verse 17 is the key verse here. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war, make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the key verse to understand the time of this war is in verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is nourished to be nourished for time, times, and a half a time. So he couldn't go after this particular group of God's people. So he went to another group. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war. And he started this war at the start of the three-and-a-half-year period on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And I want you to notice the time that he knew that was short is three and a half years. Three and a half years that the devil is going to be allowed to do his dirty work. Now, in chapter 13, because remember the Bible wasn't written in chapters, so, I mean, it helps, but in this case it doesn't. So he went off to make war, and he and he stood on the sand of the sea, and in Revelation 13, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems and on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. And if you go to Daniel chapter 7, you see that this beast is an amalgamation of all the rest of those beasts. The beast that looked like a leopard, the beast that looked like a bear, and the beast that uh, looked like a lion. It's a combination of all three of those beasts into one. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. 
One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. People say that the the geopolitical beast could be assassinated. I don't know. But but this is talking about some kind of uh, mortal wound that the beast has. I don't know if this is talking about him literally as a geopolitical uh, beast, uh, a person, or a human being, or the system that he heads. But anyway, one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they fouled the beast. Verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who can fight against it? Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed for him to exercise authority for 42 months, or 1,260 days, or a time, times, and a half a time. Verse 6 of Revelation chapter 13. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints. And when did, he, when did the devil start to make war on the saints? Well, after he realized he couldn't go after the group that was protected, so he went after the, the, the offspring of that seed, those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Yeshua. And he realized that he had a short time, which is the three and a half years. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to, to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe, people, and language, and, and nation. Verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name was has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. It's going to take a whole lot of faith, folks, to endure the tribulation. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now this other beast is the religious beast. There's two beasts. There's a geopolitical beast. And there's a religious beast. It had two horns like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. This is symbolic of the person acting like the Messiah but they're not the Messiah, or acting like they support the Messiah, and they don't. So it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast, the geopolitical beast, in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. So the primary responsibility of this second beast, which, it, which could be the Pope, because I don't know of any other religious leader that has the, the power and the authority and and the the notoriety and the popularity and 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 the popularity of nations around the world as the pope. So we need to watch and see if that's going to come into play. But anyway, verse twelve: It exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. Verse thirteen: It performs great signs, even making fire. Now these are the signs to look for on, on the evil side. So this individual could be the Pope or someone else, but it looks like it could be the Pope. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to and earth in front of people. So he's going to be doing the same thing that Elijah Elijah did. Verse 14. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. So it's going to be a statue made for the beast. That was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15. 
and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Not only is a statue going to be made of the anti-Messiah, the geopolitical anti-Messiah, but also this pope or whoever is going to be is going to allow this statue or God's going to allow this false prophet to give power to the statue. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand on the forehead. People are saying it could be an integrated chip. It could be. But what you've got to have to understand is the sign of God's people. And I was going over that in the Torah readings uh, last night with um, some friends of mine. But let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 31. What is the sign of God's people, folks? Any of you I know probably don't know, but let's find out. Exodus chapter 31, verse 13. This is the sign that we make, better make sure we have if we want to consider ourselves God's people. Exodus 31, verse 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel, and here we go again with my disclaimer. Uh, the people of Israel, folks, are the 12 tribes that supposedly have been lost, the 10 tribes, but they have been found uh, by those who know and you can know by simply going to this website. It's www.b as in boy, R-I-T-A-M.org. That's www.b as in boy, R-I-T-A-M.org, your Davidi's website that will prove to you that the ten tribes of Israel have been located and found and that the United States is the, one of the chiefs of these tribes at this time. Uh, you are to speak to the people of Israel, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reveals that... Uh, all these things that were written down for our examples uh, in, in the Old Testament. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Shabbats. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days Shall work be done? That's a part of the Sabbath. You must work six days, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on that Sabbath day shall be put to death. Verse 16. Therefore the people of Israel, which uh, Ephesians 2 verse 20 proved that we are a part, actually um, Ephesians chapter 2, that chapter proves that we are a part of the commonwealth of Israel, so we are a part of the people of Israel as well. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Shabbat, observing the Shabbat throughout their generations as a covenant forever, forever. Verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and all, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So that's the sign that we are the people of God by keeping the Shabbat, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Revelation chapter 13, let's go back. So we better make sure that we have that sign instead of this one or, or, or a mark. We should have the mark of God, which is keeping the Shabbat, and the holy days, which is like a Shabbat. Revelation 13, verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Verse 16. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaves. So no one's going to get away from this. 
to be marked on the right hand or in the forehead so that no one can buy or sell. So whatever this thing is, what is integrated chip or whatever, don't take that mark. Don't take that sign. Because if you do, you're going to have great difficulty. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this taking this mark has something to do with socioeconomics, the ability to take care of yourself. But don't be tempted to take it because if you are, you're going to have a hard time, according to the Bible. Okay. So that's one of the signs of the tribulation is the great martyrdom of saints for three and a half years. Um, Yeshua talks about this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, that you should be killed. Some of you should be killed. Uh, I don't have time to go all over all the scriptures. Uh, Mark 13, uh, that talks about this, but uh, the fifth seal, Mark 13, verses 11 to 13, Luke chapter 21, verse 16 to 17, Daniel 7, verse 21, Revelation 11, verse 7, Revelation 12, verse 6, Revelation 12, verse 13 to 17, and Revelation 13, verse 7. Now, what are the signs of the abomination of desolation? Well, let's go over that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 states the following. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, so... That word, holy place, if you look the phrase up in the King James Version, as I'm going to do right now, holy place. The Bible interprets itself. If you're wondering what Yeshua meant, it's, it's here in the Bible. Acts 6, verse 13. And set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now, the context of this, of course, is in the first century. And, and during the first century, even when Yeshua died on the cross, the temple was still there. The temple was not destroyed until A.D. 70. And this word holy place means a, a built temple. Acts chapter 21, verse 28. Crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law. And they were falsely accusing Shaul or Paul. And this place, and further brought Greeks into the temple, and had polluted this holy place. In Hebrews 9, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. And he's talking about the holy place in heaven having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then Hebrews 9, verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. So, we understand that when Yeshua mentioned holy place, that he meant a built temple. So for people who think there's not going to be a built temple, I say that you don't know your scriptures properly, and you need to, to, to study your scriptures to understand that there's going to be a built temple. If you have eSword, eSword, please do a Google search, eSword, get the software, it's free, type in holy place. You'll see that holy place is only in four places um, in the entire Bible. Actually, uh, let, me, let me correct myself here, look it up again here. Actually, it's in more places than uh, it's 
every time you see holy place here, it's talking about a built structure, all right, holy place, in the Old and the New Testament. So that's that's what you need to understand, all right? So Yeshua was talking about a built structure, a built temple. So you, you need to understand that. And then I think the an excellent translation in the scriptures, 1998 version, says, so when you see the abomination that lays waste, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, set up in a set-apart place. So it, it is this is a built temple, folks. All right? And you need to understand this. This is one of the elements that must be there for the start of the abomination of desolation. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 14 states, the following. Mark 13, verse 14. Mark 13, verse 14. says, but when you shall see the abomination, this is something you have to see. It's not spiritual, folks. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, because you can't see spirit, right? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that reads understand, and let him that be in Judea or the West Bank flee to the mountains. So what did we just read about what Lot was told to do? To flee to the mountains, right? And you need to flee to the mountains wherever you wherever you're at in your in your area in the wilderness area. That's what you need to do. Okay, getting back to Luke chapter twenty-one. Luke chapter 21. Just like uh, in Revelation chapter 12, that's the wilderness in the Middle East, but there's going to be other uh, believers around the world. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation is near. So, let me read this in the um, easy-to-read version of the Bible. You will see armies all around Jerusalem. Then you will know that the time for its destruction has come. The people in Judea at that time should run away to the mountains. The people in Jerusalem must leave quickly. If you are near the city, don't go in. The prophets wrote many things about the time when God will punish his people. The time I'm talking about is when all these things must happen. All right, so anyway, he's telling you that Armies will surround Jerusalem, ready to besiege it. And then it says, when that happens, you know that its destruction has come, the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? At that time, we need to be alerted to, to realize that it's time to flee. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation, I already read that to you. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17. But let's also look at something else that's going to occur as well. And... First Second Thessalonians chapter two verse four states this. Verse three rather. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away or, or a rebellion first, and that man of sin be revealed. So the man of sin has to be revealed, and it's interesting that he's called the son of perdition. And that phrase is only used one other time in the Bible, and it refers to Judas. So this is very interesting that the Bible refers to um, 
the anti-Messiah as being a son of perdition. And John 17, verse 12 states this. It says, While I was with them in the, word, in the, in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou give, gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So in that scripture he was talking about, of course, Judas. And you read the whole context there as he was praying to the Father. So back to Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away of rebellion first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that also has to happen as well. That's an element of the tribulation. It says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now you know that withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. And many people believe that this is Michael the archangel that's withholding the power of the devil from doing more damage than, than what he's doing right now. It says, For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And that's talking about uh, Michael the archangel. In verse 8, and, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of the devil with all power and signs and lying wonders. Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth. You've got to love the truth. Not grudgingly obey it, but you have to love it. The truth is Psalm 119, verse 142, Psalm 119, verse 142, the entire teachings of Torah, a law of God, that they might be saved. So you have to love the truth, the law of God, that you may be saved. Verse 11, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Verse 12, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he's going to send delusion, folks. And it's going to delude people who just don't want to obey the Lord, unfortunately. All right, so, now at this time, Revelation 12, verse 7 to 12 is happening. There's going to be war in heaven. Let's, let's look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So when this war is over quickly and the devil is thrown to the earth, that's when he knows that he has a short time. That's when the three and a half year period begins. Okay? Verse 2, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And this is what's going to occur when the devil is thrown to the earth. He's going to go after the woman, as I proved to you in Revelation chapter 12. And then he, he can't go after the woman that's going to be nourished for three and a half years, so he's going to go after the remainder of her seed. 
And how is he going to do that? Well, in Revelation chapter 13, he raises up the beast. He He's probably going to totally possess the geopolitical beast and also the, uh, the, the pope or whoever is going to be the false prophet. And this is the event that he talked about, Yeshua. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, what is the daily sacrifice? Well, let's go to uh, Numbers 28 and find out. Numbers chapter 28, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifices made by fire for a sweet savor unto me, shall you observe the offering to me in their due season. Verse 3, And you shall say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which you should offer unto the Lord, two lambs of the first year without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. So that's the daily offering. Verse 4, The one lamb shall thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shall thou offer at evening. So that is the daily offering. And then this is interesting, verse 5, And the tenth part of the ephah of flour for a meat offering, or that's a grain offering, mingled with the fourth part of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering, which was ordained in the Mount Sinai for a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. And verse 7, And the drink offering there should be a fourth part of a hen for one lamb, and the holy place shall thou cause a strong wine to be poured into the lamb for a drink offering. Verse 8, And the other lamb shall thou offer at evening, as the meat offering, or the grain offering of the morning, and as the drink offering thereof, thou shalt offer it as sacrifice made by fire as sweet savor unto the Lord. Okay, so it looks like the um, the daily offerings are combined with grain offerings. So that explains perhaps the description in Daniel 9, uh, verse 27, where it says the, the uh, sacrifices and the oblation which is the grain offering, but I'm seeing that the grain offering is combined with the two lambs uh, for a continual offering. So, so anyway, getting back to, so that's what's going to be stopped, the daily sacrifice in the morning and the evening. That's going to be stopped. And what the to initiate all the rest of the sacrifices during the day, the morning sacrifice has to be done first, along with the drink offering and the grain offering. And then all the rest of the offerings are done. And then in the evening, the same thing. Uh, you sacrifice the lamb, and then you have the drink offering, the grain offering, according to Numbers chapter 28, verse 1 to 10. All right. So that, when this, when this temple is built, when it's finally built, uh, there's another scripture, by the way, that proves that the temple is going to be built in the end times. Let's go to um, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And this is one of the things to look for in the last days. Um, this word. In Hebrew, last days means akarit hayamen. It means the end of days, the end times or latter times, when the olam haza is coming to a close and the olam haba is about to begin. So that is what that's talking about. And it's interesting that it says in the in the last days, that that's the days of the Messiah. 
Olam Haza means this world, this age, and Olam Haba is the world to come. So that is pretty interesting. Again, Akarit Hayamen. Akarit Hayamen means the end of days, the end times or latter days when the uh, this current world is coming to a close and the world to come is about to begin. That's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, it says, These things happened in prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the end times. All right, so it says, In the days of the coming of the Messiah, the mountain of Adonai's house will be established as the most important mountain. That's on Mount Moriah. So this is a prophecy telling you that the temple will be built. It will be regarded more highly than other hills, and all going or Gentiles will stream there. All right? So it will be established during the end times. All right? So that's that's something it says right here, by the mountain of the Lord's house, it says by the mountain of the Lord's house is meant not Mount Moriah, on which the temple was built, well, this is his his uh, interpretation here, John Gills, and I think he's off track here. But anyway, let me read the proper. Yeah, this is the temple on Mount Moriah. All right? So this is what this is talking about. This is a prophecy of a rebuilt temple. And then also in the Jewish version, it says, and it shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. So this is a prophecy telling you that the temple will be built in the last days, folks, for those who doubt. Okay, so we're going to have a rebuilt temple. The altar has to be dedicated. That's found in Second Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 9, for seven days, uh, I'll read that, Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 9. says, and on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So, so seven to eight days is going to involve rededicating the altar once they set it up. And the daily sacrifices have to be stopped. So there's a lot of events that have to occur here. There's going to be a statue of the Antimessiah. The Antimessiah will sit in the temple of God, claiming he is God. Believers will flee to the wilderness. Two witnesses will begin their preaching. When the devil realizes he has a short time after he's tossed out of heaven, after the war in heaven, and what he will immediately do is use the Antimessiah and the false prophet to go after the remainder of her seed who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The false prophet begins his deception on behalf of the geopolitical beast. Those, those are all the things that will have everything to do with the abomination of desolation. So the things that we need to be looking for is a rebuilt temple, an agreement to have this rebuilt temple. That's what Daniel 9, verse 27 appears to be talking about. There's obviously going to have to be some kind of agreement. Um, whether Daniel 9, 27 is talking about it or Isaiah chapter 28 is talking about the covenant with death. It's 
anyway. There has to be some kind of agreement, which could happen this month. I don't know if, if Obama goes to Jerusalem and they're talking about this the, the the second temple period. Who knows? That's why we have to watch. But th- this could happen. So a rebuilt temple that has to happen first. Uh, the altar has to be dedicated for seven to eight days, and then the daily sacrifices have to be stopped. A statue of the beast has to be created and, and put in place. And it appears the anti-Messiah must sit in the temple of God claiming it is God. He's going to be doing that. Believers will flee to the wilderness. Two witnesses will begin their preaching. Uh, the armies will surround Jerusalem. The anti-Messiah will begin his uh, persecution of the saints at that particular period of time. All right? So... um that is the Bible study for today. Uh, I'm going to continue on next week. I'm going to talk about the characteristics of the days of the coming of the Messiah or the end days. And there's really, there's actually um, some things to look for. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six. Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, there's seven things to look for that are characteristic of the end times. And I discovered this by simply putting in the phrase um, last days, which again in Hebrew means akarit hayam, and it means the end of days, the end times of the latter days when the olam haza is coming to a close and the olam haba or when the current world is coming to a close and the world to, to come is about to begin. Okay? So that's that's what that's talking about. And I discovered this, that these seven things, and I'll go over this and I'll explain it next week, these are the characteristics of the last days according to the King James Bible and looking all these things up. These are the subjects. These are the things that we need to focus on. The 12 tribes of Israel. The temple of God. The Holy Spirit being poured upon all mankind, which is going to start with the believers, but it will culminate in the second coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit being poured out of, on all of mankind. Perilous times. The Messiah is speaking to his servants in these last days. And um, great wealth accumulation of the twelve tribes. That's another characteristic of the last days. And then also people doubting the return of the Messiah. So these are the seven things that I'm going to go into detail talking about next week. All right? So, may God bless and keep you. May the great Elohim protect you. And Elohim willing, I'll be available for you next week. Shalom. Peace. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. 
and ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 